you. First of all, let me say I'm not legendary. I'm real. <laughs> this is me. Uh, I'd also like to say that uh, my favorite number is 13. And why is that? It's because everybody is so mean to 13. <laughs> they try to pretend it doesn't exist. You can't have the seat on a plane, or you can't have the floor in a hotel. So it stands to reason that I would always have been passionate for 13. <laughs> and I have to say that 13 has done me very well. All my scholarships were won, sitting in seats with numbers that were multiples of 13. <laughs> And since, ever since then, I've been also a bit passionate about prime factors. I will shake down any phone number till I get to the prime factor that lies at its heart. So I'm aware of all of that. But I, w I wouldn't say that I understand myself terribly well. This is, this is partly because I don't pay myself quite that much attention. So if you ask me if I'm happy, I honestly don't know the answer. It strikes me as a fundamentally boring question. Why should I be uh, busy? Yes. And busy probably means happy. But when it comes to explaining how I end up having turned my whole life over to the service of a forest, I can't, <laughs> I can't answer the question, uh, except it's a bit like my feeling about the number 13. I got involved with the rainforest because, and I think a lot of us know this feeling, because I really, really wanted to find something, anything that I could fix. I could see all sorts of shit happening all around me, and most of the time I felt that I, there was nothing I could do about it. Uh, I watched our media become less and less logical, more and more ridiculous, and thought, what can I do? I can try and talk sense, but they won't publish it, or nobody's listening, or whatever. I could even try and remember the structure of the language, which has gone down the tubes. And that was necessary to us to maintain some notion that we were thinking clearly. But like all of us, I felt I can't fix the possibility that we'll destroy the world. I can't stop irrationality overrunning us all. I can't do any of that. Give me something I can fix. It's an even more fundamental question, which is, let me do good. And from the time I was a little girl, I realized that this was really, really hard. I can remember giving my pocket money to a beggar and my mother saying, he'll only drink that, you know. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, what have I done? I said, yeah. And did I do it so I could feel smug and feel better and feel rich? Uh, and I don't think it was really that. And one of the things that's become really hard for us in this world is to find a way of doing good. Just to say, I did this thing, and it was the right thing to do, and it had desirable consequences. It's unbelievably difficult. And doing evil is so much easier. But then, it occurred to me in my dotage that maybe if I could mend some part of the country I was born in, I don't call it my home, 
And some of you will know how complex my feelings are about Aboriginal claims to Australia and about the, the shonkiness of the white man's claim to Australia, the white woman's being not even the same, but more or less, I guess. And I thought, I'll find a bit of Australia that I can fix. And I went all over the place. I went to the desert. I went to friends who had uh, cattle stations in the Northern Territory. And I thought, I can't, I can't do this. I, I, I couldn't live with animals that are being deprived of their young, that are being castrated, that are being abused. I can't, I don't want to hear their cries and their, their wailing. I can't live there. And if I try to restore the vegetation, I can't do that either because the, exec, the exotic plants that have been introduced are too strong for me. I can't do this. I went to the south coast of New South Wales and wondered if I could maybe restore something there of the uh, grassy forests and the dry forests there and realized that the only way I could do it was in consortium with people who didn't really get the nature of the problem. And then I gave a talk in um, Logan in Brisbane uh, for a feminist organization, a fundraiser, and, and it was a great night. I think they made quite a lot of money. And afterwards we were talking about, I said, I really, really need to find a piece of this country that I can maybe fix. Um, I've been trying to get it in the desert and I can't. Uh, and they said, oh, well, there's always this bit of country that um, belongs to the mother of the guy who does our psychiatry for us. <laughs> now, it's, it may sound funny, but she had worked in the public health system all her life. And some of you will know that this meant that she had bugger all to retire on. And they had bought her a piece of land, which is a very Australian thing to do, that they thought would make money for her, that she could run a business, she could have maybe ca uh, camping or some sort of tourist thing. And then they discovered that it was all impossible or illegal. Now, what we're looking at here is this here is where the photograph is taken from, and this is Lamington Plateau, the site of Lamington National Park, which some of you may know. This is the valley of the Narang River. Well, actually, it goes up there behind that. And this is Springbrook up here, the Springbrook National Park. These are all World Heritage Sites. This is the Pacific Ocean, and if this wasn't in the way, we would see the skyscrapers of surface paradise. So the next day, these people took me to see this piece of land in here. And when we saw it, I thought, oh, I really, really don't, don't want this. A, I'm claustrophobic. The last thing I want is a rainforest, a closed canopy, the worst possible thing. We were there in the middle of the day when the sun comes down like arrows where all the shadows are black and I couldn't really see anything. I couldn't make it happen for me. Um, and I thought half a million dollars it would have been for a, an abandoned dairy farm. I don't think so. I don't think I, I can take this on. 
But the land had other ideas. This is the land in question. I, th I was taken back to uh, Logan, where I had spent the night. And for some reason, I still don't know why, I walked into the hotel and I went straight to the Avis desk and I hired a car. And I drove all the way back again. 120 kilometers, not far by Australian standards. And I arrived at dusk. And that's when the forest comes alive. It had been dead during the day, it was quiet. But as the dusk fell, all kinds of animals started doing stuff. I could hear, I thought they were possums, they were actually catbirds. But the most amazing thing was that a bird came out of the undergrowth, a black and yellow bird. And I'm, I guess, a bit superstitious. You know that from the number 13. But um, I'd always looked for a sign. Give me a sign. <laughs> Sounds like a song. Uh, just give me a sign so that I know that I can do something here. And the bird, for me, was the sign. And the bird danced for me. I still don't know why that happened, um, because I've studied everything about this bird, which is the regent power bird, which is local to this area. Uh, but when I left that night, I knew that I would buy this property. It wasn't that I found it. It was that it found me. There was something I could fix. Now, why did I think I could fix it? Because I could see that there was enough of the original vegetation for me to be able to collect seed from the trees growing already in that place. You have to understand that Australia is overrun with hundreds of thousands of exotic species. We have no grassland left. All our grasses are now exotic. So the grasses that kangaroos ate for millennia are gone. In my birth state of Victoria, 1% of grassland, native grassland, is left. 1%. So, I decided that I would take it on. And I didn't, I didn't even know if I could do it. I didn't know how I could do it, except that I had been a gardener for a long time, and there were lots of things that I knew how to do. I do know how to propagate trees, I do, do know how to plant them. Now, to get an idea of what our forest looks like, uh, this is a dreadful photograph. It's my photograph. Um, but this is an Illawarra flame tree, Brachychiton acerifolius. And this is the way it looks in the forest. When you look up the slope, all, it's all hooker's green deep. Do you remember having that color in your paint box when you were at school? That's the color that it is. And sometimes it has a blue cast and sometimes it has a gold or a pink cast, but the extraordinary thing that intensifies its green, this is part of its fascination for me. Uh, unfortunately, my workforce planted far too many around my house, and I'm having to surreptitiously destroy them. This is a thing called an earth star. It's a fungus. It pops up when the situation is, when the conditions are right. It's kind of hideous, but it's kind of amazing as well. And these are rainforest ground covers. Uh, this is Panicum pygmium, uh, and we also have a myriophyllum up there. You don't want to know all that, uh, but it fascinates me. Um, and this was the odd thing about it. Um, I had to learn everything anew. I had to learn all the botany. I had to learn 
Uh, I also had to learn how botanists disagree with each other and also the nonsense that is botany. It's all a way of eternizing the reputations of completely insignificant people. <laughs> now, this will give you an idea of what my... This is Mount Hobwe. This is rather the shoulder of Mount Hobwe. This is where we were before, the top of, La of Lamington Plateau. But this is what our, our plantings look like. We collect the seed from the land, uh, we propagate it, we harden it off for two years, then we plant it out. Uh, we have to do a bit of weed control, but the amazing thing is within a, within a, a year or two, it's done because the trees start to cast shade. This is a bit unfair to all the people struggling to restore um, land, uh, landscapes and vegetation forms in other parts of the country because generally eucalypt forest, for example, allows the sun through. That gives you a whole lot of different problems. This is a little orchid that popped. We have orchids popping up everywhere. Uh, this is tiny, and my photograph is rubbish. Uh, but this is part of the excitement, but only part. The important thing here is not to restore things that are rare. If they're rare historically, it's because they really didn't have what it took to survive in a more testing environment. So you don't value things because they're rare. What you value is the whole system. And there's a reason why. This is the sort of thing that terrifies people in uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Um, this is a phasmid, a female, and this is the male. In many of our rainforest species, the male is smaller than the male. Not something I find uh, troublesome. I quite like the idea. So, and we've got a whole series of these pictures, and I don't think they exist elsewhere, of the, of the mating of these two animals, uh, which is tender and extraordinary. Oh, hang on. Uh, <coughs> I've got to remember me right button. Now, you know what they are. They're pythons. We've got two there. We've, this one here is probably the one I called Jessie Norman. And you might be able to see why she's called Jessie Norman. I won't elaborate. And she's chosen this partner. This is a huge male python. Now, generally, python, male pythons don't get very huge. Um, female pythons get a lot bigger, but there are many fewer of them because their lifestyle is so demanding. But what you, when you read about pythons, nobody tells you about their social life. It's assumed they don't have one. Now, this is part of the excitement. I knew that I had to restore habitat. What I didn't know is that the animals were already waiting for me to do it. Uh, and so along they came, a whole um, aggregation of pythons that spent weeks, literally weeks, wrapped in each other's arms. They fought, they danced. I never saw them actually coupling. I saw them like this day after day, wrapped in each other's arms. Oh, how did that happen? Excuse me. Uh, I don't know. How did that camel get there? <laughs> I'm going to leave. I can't make the camel go away. Uh, but it doesn't matter. I've finished. Look, I've finished. I've finished. The camel came. <laughs> I mean, I've finished. 
I seem to remember a verse that goes, which explains the hump on the camel and the sphinx's inscrutable smile. Um, but anyway, what I, the reason that I'm here tonight is not simply to push the book, although I'm, I realise I have a duty to do this, but it's to say that you may think you can't fix anything here, but believe me, you can. You can find a threatened ecosystem and you can decide to take it on. It might be salt marsh, it might be a bog, it could be anything, it could be a stony hillside. But we are losing native habitat all over the world, not just in Australia. My connection to Australia is clear. But you have the same possibility here, and people are doing it here. Now that we know that governments will not do it, that capitalism doesn't even have the mindset that can understand why you would do it, then it's time for us to do it. And the only thing I can say is, if you start, it will be hard and you'll get it wrong, but it will take care of you. Give it an inch and it will give you a mile. And that's anywhere, anywhere. You can restore native habitat and the creatures will have been waiting. They will suddenly be there all around you and you will feel that you don't have to apologize for your existence anymore even though the worst threat our planet has is us. Thank you.